Hello cult hackers and welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate with an interest in cults. And I'm her dad. I'm Stephen Mather. I'm trained as an organisational psychologist. I work in business doing training, but I'm also very interested in cults because I was raised in one and I left when I was about 30 when you were born, Celine. Very succinct. We are good at this now. It's only taken us three years in November, three years next month, Celine, is our birthday. Mm-hmm. Exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so today we're doing a bit of a psychological one. Uh, we're looking at the psychology of cults in a bit more detail. And we're going to cover a topic that we've threatened to talk about a lot. and We've name dropped it a bit. I felt what like we've already done this. So no, when you said about really. it. When you said about it, I was just like, oh, we've already done this, surely. But I, I know that you would have checked that. Um, <laughs> uh, it's the prison experiment. Uh, right. So we have we have um, kind of on a very high level mentioned it and just sort of uh, in passing. But um, I've been quite hesitant to get into a deep dive on it. It's Why? for a number of reasons. Please highlight um, the reasons. <laughs> please highlight the reasons, yes. Yeah. Um, so it's quite a controversial uh, study. It's become more controversial fairly recently. Um, I didn't realise it was controversial. I yeah. thought it was just known as a bit of a dodgy one. Do you know what I mean? Like Everyone was a bit like, you know, I thought it was the quintessential, look what they used to do back in the day, and that was as controversial as it was. I didn't realise there was controversy around it. Yeah, so ethically, obviously, there's some issues with it, and um, but the in terms of the actual science, it's it's another one of those. But the ah, okay. um, but the I suppose slightly tricky bit is Zimbardo is I would say in in modern parlance, he's a bit of an ally when it comes to uh, cult work and so on. So you know, he's he's actually worked with some people that we know um Mm. and he's he talks about cults and you know he's pretty aligned with where we are on on this topic um and so it's one of these slightly uncomfortable situations where you find yourself somebody that you actually really agree with in in a lot of ways but um you have kind of problems with the actual work that he's done um so yeah, let's get into it. Let's get into it because I think it's it's a it's a really important study. Um, it's called the Stanford Prison Experiment, which um, most people who've got any interest in psychology have taken any courses on psychology will probably have heard about it or will have read about it. If you've ever listened to podcasts about psychology or read a book, it's an introduction, to, it's always like, in there. You know, yeah. if it's like wildest experiments to have ever happened it's it's in this number one on the list you know yeah exactly and it, it sort of comes around and around over and over again um so let's let's uh let's quickly uh go through it in terms of what the actual experiment was um just before that though i think the thing that i find interesting about this experiment is it actually raises so many questions that i find absolutely fascinating and they are very very relevant to cults so it is very relevant to the question of courts and coercive control. So here are, I just thought about some sort of um, binaries, I suppose, in terms of, of what the issues are that this this 
piece of work raises. So questions of individual responsibility versus group responsibility and um, effect on individuals. Um, who's accountable, I suppose, is one of the questions for behavior. Um, situational versus individual psychology. So, yeah, is it really all about the person or is it really about the situation or the systems? Um, questions around the scientific method versus popularization of psychology and storytelling, I suppose. Evil. You know, is there such thing as evil? And if there is such thing as evil, what is it? So all of these questions are wrapped up in this study. And I'll just give a quick brief overview. I've written a few notes down, so I'll try to sort of give it a quick overview. Um, Now, my references from this are mainly from my uh, study books from my degree. So this was for my psychology degree. Again, Zimbardo is, is in the first book you study. Um, But even back then, it was still considered to be, there's lots of questions raised about it. And, you know, so it's not like only recently has this been a problematic study. So it's always been one of those that people have criticised, or at least for quite some time. So basically, Zimbardo, um, he was in his 30s, so a fairly young professor at Stanford, just given tenure. Mm-hmm. Um, and he d- puts a call out for students at Stanford to take part in a study about prison life. He gets more than 70 applicants reply to this, um, and they whittle it down to 24 people. They they do some psychological tests, um, some psychometric tests, and they do some interviews to try to whittle out anybody that's had any mental health problems or has any history of psychopathy or anything like that. Um, they they offer to pay the participants $15 a day for doing this experiment. So this is going back to the 70s. So, you know, it's, it's around $100 worth a day on, in today's currency, I suppose. Um, so it's not loads of money, but it is a, it's quite unusual to pay participants that sort of money um, for a, a study. Um, it was planned to last two weeks, but it was stopped after six days. And what they did is they took half of those applicants or those participants and they randomly selected them as prison guards and the other half, they were prisoners. So they randomly selected for these half prison guards, half were prisoners. They converted the basement of one of the buildings at Stanford into what looked like a prison with three cells, three prisoners in each cell. Within 36 hours one prisoner began suffering from acute emotional disturbances, or at least seemed to, disorganized thinking, uncontrollable crying and rage because of the situation he was in, um, and so on it went. Um, He talks about this himself, so you can read his own transcripts and you can listen to his talks about this on interviews and so on. Um, For the prisoners, he had an arrangement with the local sheriff or one of the law enforcement departments to go round to the house of these students who were going to be the prisoners. They didn't know this was going to happen. Um, They knew they were signed up to this experiment, but they didn't know this was going to happen. They, uh, the police turned up at their door, stormed in, put them in handcuffs, accused them of some drug trafficking offenses or charged them with something and, um, or, arrested them 
over something and uh, bundled them in the car, took them into prison. And that's when it began. Um, and that from that moment on, then they were the prisoners. Um, very little. They could, obviously, they couldn't go out. They had no exercise and so on, so on. They were stuck in these prisons. And then the prisoners, uh, the prison guards were there to, to look after, in inverted commas, them um, and so on. Um, after six days, so very quickly, one of these people ends up um, having to be released. But within six days, because the whole thing had deteriorated so badly, you had some of the prison guards, they basically said they, they'd separated themselves into three types. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the tough but fair group. There were the good guys who tried to help them. And then there was others who were like hostile, arbitrary, and inventive in creating humiliating situations and and uh, very quite horrible things. They, they they invented this game called Camel, I think, um, and they made the uh, the prisoners simulate having sex with each other um, in the cell. They were led around the the prison environment with sacks on their heads when they were going to go to the toilet. The first thing they did was strip them naked and get rid of all their clothes and gave them a number, not a name. So everybody called them by their number. Very humiliating. And did they get their clothes back? I, I think they got them back eventually, <laughs> yeah. Gosh. Um, but they had to wear prison uniforms yeah. while they were there. And according to Zimbardo, what happened was that his girlfriend, who was a recently qualified PhD sociologist, she saw what was happening and and she said look this is terrible what are you doing you know this is this is this is awful mm. um and according to him she said look if this is the sort of person you're becoming i don't want i don't want anything to do with you mm. um and he realized at that point that yes it had gone too far um he admits some mistakes uh, one of the mistakes was that he played the role of the prison officer so he played the, the role of the person in charge the warden yeah um, which he admits he shouldn't have done because he then became sort of part of the experiment. And when one of them said he was upset and wanted to go home, Zimbardo started to believe that he was just putting it on, you know, and he didn't, you know, he he, um, he was but behaving they, like an actual warden. Well, yeah, because he's made himself part of the experiment, yeah, which you should right. never do. You should never no. be part of your own experiment. Which, to be fair to Zimbardo, he he acknowledges. Mm. Um, Poor and, guy that wanted to leave. Yeah, I mean, um, well, there was. Uh, there's a bit more to that story that we might get time to talk about. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that's that's the bones of it, really, and the conclusions that Zimbardo draws from this is that put people, good people because these guys were good people, put them in a a situation where they are dehumanizing others, create an environment where it's okay to behave that way, and in fact it's encouraged, then what you'll find is that anybody can behave that way. And he's used this, this sort of analysis to say that we're all capable of doing terrible things you know the old question could could anybody become a nazi you know and his answer is 
yes, because all you need is a situation you're not familiar with and you end up in that situation. And because of the situation, you you find yourself doing things that you wouldn't normally do and you're capable of doing awful, terrible things. And, you know, this isn't um, this isn't an idea that has suddenly come out of nowhere. I mean, I think in popular culture and literature even, I think back to um, the classic Lord of the Flies, you know, where the kids get um, shipwrecked on an island and end up becoming savages, essentially. The, the whole question about civilization is quite a thin veneer. And when you strip that away, you know, people can behave in some really terrible ways. Um, so I don't think it's completely outlandish, but that's basically the uh, the conclusion he comes to. It's really about the situation. It's really about the environment that creates this this thing. And he wrote a book on the back of this called The Lucifer Effect, right. which is really describing in more detail what he thinks is happening here. So um, I'll, I'll stop talking and, and see what your reaction is to that. I guess my initial thoughts are... I suppose it's interesting. So I always think of um, when when this is mentioned, the is it the other side of the coin? I don't know. You see see what you think um, with uh, the banality of evil, that book mm. that was written, because um, I guess he's like, yes, exactly. So um, she kind of says it's, um, it's less. I guess it's less that people are like capable of of um, this like wrathful evil, or that it's just you know it's this mundane evil. I suppose of just you know doing being part of the machine of this awful organization i suppose you know you know not directly always doing harm but it is still doing harm i guess with him it's that it's the descendants into like the actual evil like you said do it enjoying the like power and personally doing it i suppose that is like is that is is yeah. that in everybody do you know what i mean rather there's I suppose they're not two sides of, of a different quite they're just different levels I suppose yeah. and it's like is everyone capable of that level of like you mm. know stripping people down and calling them numbers and playing games with them do you know what I mean versus people that maybe work in in some of these awful places and like you say that I suppose there's different elements like you said they split into three groups yeah, so there's, you know yeah I, I think I think that's that's your answer to that question is that according yeah. to the research there were three um sort of he split into three sorts if you like, yeah. so you've got the 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 just following orders um mm. guards um you've got the people who perhaps really didn't want to be there because there's um, probably people there that is... there literally for the money which is much like in mm. the real world um, um and then you've got the good guys who who although tried to help the prisoners in little ways they still didn't stop there, yeah, you know? yeah yeah so so the question there is, you know, even in... I mean, you get a bit of a combo potentially of experiments in that sense, where it's like, you know, the um, electrocution experiment where they thought they were electrocuting someone, mm-hmm. but it's because they're being told to by the psychologist. Um, yeah. And that was a test in itself. But I suppose that's the mis- the messiness of this is that uh, were they going along with it because that's what they would do in a real world scenario, but be bystanders, or is it because they thought, well, I'm in an experiment. I don't want to ruin the experiment. That's not what I'm here. Celine, to. have you have you ever considered studying psychology? Um, because you have hit the nail on the head. I think because I, I might be, I might be all right. But I've used all that money. I've gone. I said it at the start. I'm yeah. a graduate. <laughs> That's right. You've done it now. You've done the graduate mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, but no, you're absolutely right. And um, so. 
I don't know what order to talk about this in a way because there's been a lot at, there, so take it as yeah. You Actually, the the whole thing for me, I wrote down in my notes, um, Zimbardo is Milgram, which doesn't make any sense yeah. whatsoever. But, but I, yeah, 100%. I, I think you're absolutely right um, that actually this is a fascinating study um, and it demonstrates um, coercive control or at least mm-hmm. power it demonstrates leadership and lack of it or how leadership is so powerful and influences, um, but not the way that Zimbardo thinks it did. Mm. Um, so the actual results of the so-called experiment are not the ones that are initially talked about and not initially presented. Mm-hmm. So the, the recent stuff around this has been that the controversy around this has been that um and i'll sort of try to cut it down into a into a shorter story as i can i need to credit the people who have been involved in this process so there's a a a french writer called thibault le tessier um who published in french a an article or a book in fact um cataloguing many of the issues with this experiment and then there's a a journalist called Blum, um, who Ben Blum, who wrote a, an article that that really critiqued this experiment. This is going back a few years now, but it was around the time that I was sort of studying um, the organisational psychology stuff. I think, um, and yeah, and the the criticism is what Zimbardo was doing. His actual interest was initially about the prisoners and how the prisoners responded to brutal and inhumane treatment. So actually he was interested in the prisoners and their response. Mm. So when he briefs the prison officers, the, the people that would play the prison officer role, he was saying to them, we want you to be tough. We want you to be hard. Um, and there's even a recording because say one thing for Zimbardo, he kept all his workings okay. and he kept his recordings, which is what you should do in an experiment. Mm-hmm. And you can actually access this on Stanford's website. And I'm going to put the link to one of the conversations that you can hear mm-hmm. with the, I don't know whether it was Zimbardo himself, but it was the instructions that were being given to one of the prison officers playing the role of the prison officer. And basically, he was saying, look, why are you not being hard on these prisoners? And that the guy's saying, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to do that. I think this is the problem with the um, prisons and the system of prison systems and stuff. I don't want to be part of that, you know. And he's saying, well, the reason we're doing it is to show that um, this is what prison does to people. I'm paraphrasing clearly. Yeah. Um, but essentially, this is what the message was. Um, so we need you in order to get this evidence, in order to show what prison is really like and the effects it has on You've people. Got to be part of the we problem. need you to p- play this role. Um, now, that's that's very different to the impression that you get when you first read the prison experiment. The, when you first read it, what you actually take away from it, I think, is that these prison officers had a change in behavior and a change in personality because of the situation they were put into. And the situation is what made them do this. But actually they were instructed 
to behave in this way. Now, it's clear they weren't told to make um, the prisoners perform simulated sex acts on each other. That wasn't something that was in the instructions, but it was clear that they had been given clear instruction to be aggressive and to be mean, to be difficult with the prisoners. Um, And they played that role because they were told to. That was what they were trying to do. As you quite rightly said, part of the pressure was for them to not mess up the experiment. Mm -hmm. If the experiment was to see how the prisoners responded, then uh, that would make some sense. But you can't then turn it around and say, actually, we're interested in how the prison officers behaved, not within the the confines of that particular experiment anyway. From a... Um, because obviously I don't necessarily understand these the way that experiments are conducted in psychology. So, let's say what happened happened as it did. So, mm. but um, from a writing a paper sort of ethical responsible way, are you able to say this is what we set out to do? We didn't do this. However, these were some interesting findings. Is like is there a way of doing that properly, or do you so, say this was interesting, but we need to study it as a proper study? How how would you do it properly? Yeah, so I've got a lot to say about that. Um, First of all, before we get to that bit, we have to be clear about the fact that this is not an experiment. Mm -hmm. So although it's called the Stanford Prison Experiment, it is a complete misnomer. It is not an experiment. It doesn't follow follow any experiment I've ever seen, um, I've ever read about. Certainly, if we were to, as students... uh, doing our papers if we were to do something like that with which a ethically of course it's appalling you wouldn't would get away pass, with it ethically yeah, you wouldn't yeah. pass the ethics board but even technically it's not an experiment so an experiment tests a hypothesis yeah now i looked i tried to find the hypothesis for this and and i found the best i could find because i couldn't find it in my textbooks but the simply psychology website says that the hypothesis is that the rigid power structure of the prison environment caused prisoners, it would have said would cause prisoners and guards, to behave in a hostile manner. So, okay, that's your hypothesis. It's a bit, it's too loosey-goosey because what does that mean? How are you going to measure that and so on? But, okay, let's let's say say that's that's the hypothesis. Um, So then what you've got to do is you've got to have a way of testing whether something you do which is called the independent variable has some effect on the outcome which is called the dependent variable so if i was to say to you let's do an experiment to see how um you receiving good news whether that has any impact upon your heart rate so let's say i i have a hypothesis that says that receiving good news reduces your heart rate Okay, that's a, that's a hypothesis. Yep, sure. So now what I would do is I'd find a way to, first of all, test what a normal heart rate would be. So I'd give you some neutral news first. So I'd perhaps say, did you know that TV is black? Yeah. And you say, oh, yes, you're right, it's black. And I'd measure your heart rate on the basis of that. And that would be, uh, so your dependent variable is your heart rate, the independent variable is the fact that I'm saying the TV is black. Then I could manipulate the independent variable, which would be the thing that I'd change. So that could be 
um, I've just found out that you're going to get a promotion. So I've changed the independent variable from the TV is black, which is a neutral state, to you're going to get a promotion, which is a good news state. Mm. So I've manipulated a very specific thing. And now I'm going to see what happens to that same dependent variable, your heart rate. So I'm going to measure the same thing. And I'm going to be able to see whether the news that you're getting, whether there's any evidence that that is having an effect on your heart rate. Now, for one person, you'd say that's not enough to know. So if you do 50 people, let's say, or 100 people, then you're going to be able to see whether the statistically speaking, whether good news tends to reduce the heart rate. So that's how experiments work. You have an independent variable which you manipulate, you change, and you have a dependent variable which is the outcome that you're measuring. Mm. There is none of that in this. No, it's very, um, well, we just, we did this thing and... um... Yeah, exactly. we did this thing and we watched it um, and we're drawing some and conclusions so <laughs> and we rec- some people call it a case study but I don't even think in the, in its simplest form and I'll explain why in a way we can call it a case study in a minute but in its simplest form this is not a case study because a case study is something that's happened and you then investigate the yeah. thing and you haven't had any part in setting up the thing like sometimes exactly. with twin studies you you might something will have happened or like genetically yeah, or, something's happened and you're like oh like we can go see if some twins have developed differently or you know like things that just happen so go see. then you that's a bit complicated because that is it not a useful one? Oh no no it's not the best example <laughs> a better example would be a uh, like a like a team uh, or a business that went bust well, mm. let's have a look at what happened with that business that went bust case study Um, okay yeah yeah yeah, so so you're looking at a single case um and you're trying to draw some conclusions from what happened you interview people you listen to recordings you blah 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 blah, so that's the case study but that's you've not you've not created the situation there whereas in this you have so the best you can call it i think is a study it is a study of sorts you've set up a situation that you're now observing you're watching to see what's going to happen Mm. Um, but because you haven't really created any um, dependent or independent variables, even the even if you say the dependent variable is that people would behave badly, or how would prisoner officers behave towards the prisoners, that's your dependent variable. You know, you haven't got a proper measurement there. You don't know what nasty looks like. You haven't got a measurement of it. So if you're going to do this for real, you'd, you'd want to create some sort of scale of bad behavior and and so on so you'd want to create some sort of way of measuring it you haven't got that you've just got an anecdote of what you saw and you're describing it and so on and so it is not an experiment now that doesn't mean it doesn't have any value at all but it's important to call it what it is and it's not a goddamn experiment Mm -hmm. so we should stop calling it the stanford prison experiment and call it the stanford prison study maybe we can call it that because it's a study that so stuff that's happened in the prison. <laughs> say, say that stuff that happened in the prison. That stuff that happened in the in the prison or in the mock up of the prison. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's the first problem. Mm. Now the second thing that I want to address the point you made 
which I've forgotten what it was now. What was it? <laughs> um, he's testing two things. No. So, um, so people wanting to please the experimenter or do what ah, the person in charge I think, does. I think that was it. Yeah. So actually, Milgram. yeah, Milgram. So it is, it is actually for me, this is more of an example of um, a, another evidence of Milgram's findings, which itself has got some criticism, but I think it, at least that is a proper experiment mm. and it is much more controlled. Um, this is like a case study, if you want to call it that, of Milgram. So it's not a case study in the way that people think it is, but it is a case study in that if you have a professor at a top university saying to you, this is a really important piece of work, this is going to help us tenured. to revolutionise. And that holds weight. He's tenured at that point. Tenured. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is going to revolutionise the way we um, we treat prisoners. And, and bear in mind that these were generally quite progressive people. So they would be in the camp of let's not send people to horrible prisons. Um, if you have somebody saying to you, in order for that to happen, you're going to need to, to do some nasty things and be a bit horrible because this is the evidence that we're going to be able to present for the to show that prisons are bad. Yeah, for the greater good, exactly. Um, and so actually what we're seeing here is at a different level. We're seeing a study at a different level. So from our position now, be able to see that experiment in the whole. And let's face it, Zimbardo put himself in the experiment. So, okay, let's 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 get him in there then. You cannot you cannot be part of the experiment and then and then create a hypothesis that assumes that you're not part of it. So he is part of it. They encourage the prison wardens to behave in a harsh way towards the prisoners. And if you are saying that the prisoner, the prison guards that were recruited, we successfully weeded out any people with sadism or other qualities that we'd want to select out. If, if you did that successfully with that pre-work, then you're left with this conclusion that actually what happened here was that it was the authority figures, it was the leadership who created this situation by presenting incentives for people to behave in a way that they wouldn't normally behave. That is a fascinating finding, but it's not the one that is generally talked about, which I think is quite fascinating, really. Mm. Yeah, because it's always just saying, basically, it's to me, it's, it's always used in quite a depressing way. It's just basically like people are inherently like, like everyone's capable of evil and like it'll all def just devolve into into evil in the end do you know what i mean and it's kind of like this is quite depressing so so that's yeah. the other thing that, that i think um is really it's about time we how do i say this without sounding really kind of arrogant but i was gonna say it's about time we grew up really because mm. it seems to me that society wants it to be either one thing or another you know it's either that we shouldn't blame anybody because it's all about the system which is essentially what a lot of people take from Zimbardo's work, is that it's actually the system that creates this. Anybody could behave that way. It's just the system. Therefore, we need to create systems that don't uh, generate that sort of behavior. So it's all about or, the system. Or it's bad apples. Or, 
or it's all about the personal accountability and we cannot remove personal accountability from the picture. Otherwise, we're just letting people get away with things. Um, and these, these attitudes tend to sit on the left and right of society. So on the one hand, let's say prisoners' behaviour. So let's let's look at the prisoners' behaviour now and what they do out in, in the world to get put into prison in the first place. So on the one hand, often the left is saying, well, you know, what can you expect? These people are in poverty. These people are downtrodden. They don't have any agency. They don't feel like they are part of society. They have no um, stake in society. So what do you expect? You know, you're going to get people behaving this way. And on the other side, you've got people generally on the right who say, well, I grew up in a poor place and I didn't and I didn't turn out like that. And I know lots of people who don't behave that way. So it's all about personal responsibility. And I just think that's so immature because clearly it's the picture is partly both. There are, of course, individual tendencies, traits. Ultimately, we make a decision for ourselves. But if you've got 100 people, if you create a, an environment that you know, as I've just described, no agency, poverty, blah, 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 blah. You're going to get some people who are going to end up behaving in a way that you don't like. So they're both, both of these two things are factors. And I just find it really frustrating that psychology, as well as popular attitudes, tend to fall into these two binaries as if, as if it's either one thing or another. Clearly, they're all, all of these things are part of the picture. Yeah, I think, and it's not just some people are in the positions or do the things they do because of circumstance and some people do the things they do because of um it's what they're like or who they are it's that every person is influenced by both factors i would say in that yeah it's it's a you know if you let's say some people are more um they have traits that make them more likely to do x or y but if you also grow up in a particular situation it might add to that versus or it might take away from that you know these things don't happen in a vacuum it's very complicated so actually what you've got is you've got um a a combination of things that all come together so to me what the study tells us is that people may behave in horrible ways even going against their natural instincts if they believe in the desired outcome and are led in such a way that they can justify it. So there are individual traits and tendencies to behave in certain ways. These individual traits interact with beliefs, which include morals and the sense of identity of who I am, and also with the situation. So, you know, what's in my best interest or what what meets the goals that I'm trying to achieve? And this all gets mixed up and you're weighing it up um and also you're looking around to see what other people are doing because you take cues from the social norms as well so if everybody else is doing it you think well that's that's the normal thing we do around here so all of those things contribute to behavior and to just imagine it's just one thing i think is just too simplistic hi i'm tracy and i'm sharon and we are feet of clay confessions of the cult sisters 
So way back in the 1970s, we became radical Christians in the Jesus movement. We were promoted to leadership in the crazy cult commune, Last Days Ministries, founded by none other than Christian music megastar, Keith Green. Now we're sharing our decades long escape from the trauma and abuse of extreme Christianity. We tell our own stories and also invite guests to talk about fundamentalism, purity culture, arranged marriages, child abuse, misogyny, homophobia, (laughs) power-hungry patriarchy, and much more. Much, much more. So join us as we share our journey of healing and humor and how we finally found peace and joy on the other side. Feet of Clay, Confessions of the Cult Sisters, wherever you get your podcasts. Why do you think um, it's still something that we something that we go on about this particular experiment so much like there's so many terrible mm. quote-unquote experiments from back in psychological time like back in the day when psychology didn't have the same ethics board that things go through now for its research um why do you think this is one that we're like hanging on even though i don't think it's i don't think we're the first people to point out the problems with it so well, why oh, no. is it that we still go back well to- firstly I, I think that this is one of the worst examples. So um, it's true that it was the Wild West out there <laughs> for quite some time with experiments. Um, but I also think that this is because it's got a lot of ingredients that are very salacious and very fascinating. You know, you've got students behaving in this these terrible ways, these horrible ways, and it it mirrors, I suppose, as I said, um, art you know we, we we've all seen heroes in um in tv and film descend into into evil haven't we you know i mean this is a this is even a film trope you think about darth vader from anakin skywalker to darth vader um you think about some of the you know better than me some of the ancient um and classic <laughs> works where heroes become man. villains <laughs> say again the descent of man the descent become. of man exactly well, just so become, the, yeah. yeah this is a a very old trope i mean even even in the bible you know satan the devil um according to uh some theology jehovah's witnesses included um he was a, an angel of light satan the devil is actually a good guy to start with and he, a light bringer he descends yeah <laughs> so yeah this this i think it it um it is appealing and it's also as i say it's salacious it's kind of titillating in in many respects plus i think also zimbardo is a great storyteller and he tells a very compelling story about it he's got his his girlfriend comes in and tells him that this is terrible and he's also quite self-deprecating in the fact that he's willing to say look i made a mistake there and this was this was a problem, which I think so, is also very appealing. And he's willing to say that, but he's not willing to say it's not usable. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so there's a uh, there's, that's interesting. Yeah. I guess he's trying to like validate and say it's okay because I know and I've. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the the fact is, is even even some of his critics, some of the critics of the experiment, still use the experiment as a as a case study if you like um probably in many ways that i've just suggested because i think it's a great 
it's a great case study of what have you got to be careful of when you're designing a, a study mm. of some sort. Yeah. Um, but I think there's also, there is something there. You know, there is something happened there. It wasn't an experiment. It didn't have an independent variable. Um, but something happened there. Um, yep. On the surface, civilized, they were all men, which is also interesting. So I think there have been some experiments or some attempts at replication with with women, but um, I don't know of, of those so well. But anyway, um, on the face of it, you've got this uh, these what seem civilized people put into a situation that is unusual, difficult. They've also been motivated to behave in a certain way. And then they do behave in, in a way that we would say is out of their, out of character for them and quite shocking. Mm. One of the cases that Zimbardo helped with as a, as a witness was at the Abu Ghraib military detention center um abu grave i think it's pronounced in iraq where some of the u.s military were abusing and treating very badly the prisoners there some of them and um they went to trial and zimbardo um, helped on the defense of their behavior to explain that you know people do behave in ways that are out of their character so I think whether that I'm not sure whether I I think that's right or not in terms of defending people who did some awful things there. Would you do the same for concentration camp guards? Mm. These are very difficult questions, but I you know something did happen, and we can look at it and try to understand. But I think what happened was much more about what Milgram had already. Uh, suggested which was about authority and about motivation again in milgram's study for those of our listeners that can't remember that we did talk about that study in detail so you can look back on that one but um that was the one where he gets people to increase the voltage on a, a machine they thought they were giving somebody an electric shock in another room for getting the answers wrong um, but again, they were convinced that what they were doing was part of a scientific experiment about learning and they were helping to um, to progress science. So they thought they were doing a good thing in, in the, the big picture. So I think that's really what we see with this experiment. But I don't think it shows that put people in a, in a kind of slightly odd situation and they'll start behaving really badly. Um, mm. um, I, I don't think, well, it doesn't do that. But what do you think about cults? How does this relate to cults? Because I think it massively does. Yes. So um, just before we go into that, I've got one of a little... I was just going to ask, do you think there's an element within the psychological community? um, So it's a weird word to use that for, but you know what I mean? Like academic Mm. psychological community of like sunk cost because it's such a... Like if you have to write the whole thing off, it's so awful. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? If it's like yeah we like definitely did some wrong things there that shouldn't have happened uh oh do you know what i mean like if it, if it was completely not worth it and you're like oh what do well, we do well um <laughs> on the one hand you've got a lot of books to rewrite um because oh, every God. textbook has it in there but then academics are quite keen on that because then they get to write more books mm. um and sell them um mm. i i think I think there is an element of of that. There's an element of um, 
yeah, we've a lot of people have put a lot of store by this research mm-hmm. over the years. I also think that there is something that, and I don't really know the answer to this, and I've I've hinted at this before, that although um, the Wild West of psychological experiments was a bad time, <laughs> um, there's something about them that meant that they are compelling um, and they are very direct in the findings that they get. So the question now is, given the ethics that we all have to obey, and I think it's right that we do that, by the way, but given that, I can't see an experiment like Zimbardo ever happening, even if you were to create it, because you could have created it with a proper hypothesis, independent dependent variable. If you gave it some thought, you could have designed it in a way that you had proper measure, measurable variables. Or Milgram, um, that wouldn't be allowed now. No. Because of the psychological I... damage it might do to people. But the fact is, is that without those sorts of experiments, we are left with qualitative studies, um, people filling out surveys, uh, interviews with people and they just don't have the same cut through as as these good old-fashioned you know little albert milgram zimbardo his i wouldn't darling latan all of these just let um let let netflix spawn like you know make a little uh docuseries on it and uh Mm. you'll be fine you can make it for entertainment these days there's no ethics committee for the entertainment well this is this has happened as we've talked about um darren brown's recreation Mm -hmm. of the milgram um Mm -hmm. experiments he has actually done that he can do it because he's he's doing it for entertainment a scientist so Yeah. yeah it's just um i think that is part of the uh, the difficulty, and this is why these classic experiments have stayed the course because there are there is nothing like them anymore. I suppose if you want to do that sort of thing, you have to do it in different ways. And also, I suppose we've got a new realm in terms of psychology that wasn't available to them at that point, with, with um, being able to see scans of the brain and and um, yeah get people's responses to things through that and that's improving all the time so at the minute you know you've got big scanners but they're creating like hats that you wear and you can just wander mm. around and it's like basically like a rugby cap kind of thing and that's yeah. all you have to put so as that improves you'll be it opens a whole new world of, of um, it does but you you can imagine you, you can imagine doing um a version of the stanford prison experiment that had a proper mm-hmm. experimental design wearing those uh, mm. caps yeah. and measuring people's brain activity that would be absolutely fascinating you'd be able to see um so Where much I there in terms of how people yeah. but of course again you couldn't do it because of um yeah you know discomfort's another one you know so the closest you get to causing somebody discomfort is putting their hand in a bucket of ice cold water and measuring mm. people's responses um and so there's been experiments about that, but that's about as much as you can do. Um, so any psychological damage, and I'm not, I'm not saying that we should be allowed to go on, you know, cutting <laughs> somebody's finger off now and again. What's the problem with that? You know, I'm not saying that, um, and I'm not saying we should go back to the bad old days. But it is a problem, I think, to some degree, is that um, 
it just means that these old experiments still kind of resonate so much with us. Let's go back to the Zimbardo prison experiment. So how does that relate to cults, would you say? Well, I'll just throw it out there and then you can, because you've thought about this ahead of time. So yeah. this is me being asked fresh. Yeah, so, on the spot. Yeah, so I guess you could do a reading. So remember, I come from the English slash media background, so I will say yeah. I'll, I'll take it as a reading. You could do a reading where you could say that Zimbardo is the cult leader in this scenario um, because he's enlisting people into this group, um, encouraging them to put on new personalities, change their behaviour, modify how they behave, not just the inmates, but maybe even more so the... um, what they called officers, prison guards. Prison guards. He, even more so, you could say they're really in the cult because the ones that just get abducted and brought in, I mean, they're kind of just, it, it's a different kind of um, mm. control. Cultic control, we often talk about coercive control, is probably more applicable to the guards, really. Cause, um, I agree, yeah. So I would say that's kind of how we can run cult ways. Is that where you were going to take this? It is exactly where... I was going with that. And and I think it's hard actually not to see that. Um, Especially say he's a very charismatic man as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, some people who listen to our podcast might be a bit offended by that because I know he's quite well loved by some in the community. And, you know, as I say, he is an ally in respect that he talks about cults. I'll put a link to one of his articles on his website about, um, cults and how they operate and you know what he's absolutely spot on you know he's he's yeah. completely aligned to um all the academic research about well, how cults operate have, and what they do yeah he can be an ally and also and mm. you can still like things he's done and and yeah. so on with while still um looking at as we're doing now we can still look at the things he did and be like questionable <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and and I don't think, you know, he was never going to become um, a, a proper cult leader. Actually, you know, this this could be a more fitting legacy in that he found himself in a position where he was trying to do the right thing. In fact, in his um, in his article, he actually says that some cult leaders start off trying to do the right thing. They have good motives. They try to start doing the right thing. I always ask. Are you the first member of your own of court? Your own court. And I, I think, I wonder whether he, he, at certain moments, he considers that in that scenario that he'd created, he became, for a short period of time, like a cult leader, at least a coercively controlling leader of those prison guards. I agree that the actual, the actually the, uh, the inmates were, uh, we can't learn much from them, I don't think. Um, there's no surprise that treat people badly and they have a, a very bad mental reaction to that. That's that's not news to anybody. But that you can get, on the face of it, decent people to behave in horrible ways. Um, again, it's not like we've never seen that before, but in that situation, I think we can observe it, and that is interesting. Um, and yeah, I think I think he plays that role of 
leader of that group, whether we want to call it a cult or coercively controlling situation, getting people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. Um, and as you said, changing their personality, changing the, the things that they were doing or that they were willing to do. It's hard not to see that. Mm. And it feels like he's probably seen that. Maybe it's not the, yeah. what the story he touts because whatever reasons, I mean, you know, it, man's got to eat i don't know but um <laughs> you know, well, Ted you know i think he genuinely but <laughs> yeah. um but you know he has clearly engaged with the cult space quite a lot so it feels mm. it feels sort of like um it would be strange to imagine that he wasn't in he didn't set on that path or was informed of some of that or at least thinks about it mm-hmm. in relation you know I'd be surprised if he hasn't thought about it. Um, I mean, you know, in terms of cults, this is this is how cults operate. This is why they target all of the factors that we mentioned. Really, they they try to shape people's uh, self sense of self. So they, you know, put on the new personality, be theocratic, um, change people, uh, change their attitudes, change their beliefs about the world and their beliefs about how to achieve those laudable goals that they want to see. And they also create this tight-knit community with plenty of peer pressure, this social norm, to reinforce the behaviour they want, including punishment for those not complying. You know, when, when you hear the conversation with the, the guard that wasn't doing it the way they wanted to, you know, it's clear they're, they're really putting pressure on him yeah. to do it properly. Um, and I think that's that's absolutely fascinating. So, yeah, this is this is how cults operate. So if we look at it like that, then the prison, the Stanford prison experiment becomes a really interesting case study, just not the one the that we thought cult it was. Experiment. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I think to be honest, we've done this quite a good job. I think I didn't know what ride we we're gonna go on. I think this has been quite good. I've had a good time. I mean <laughs> <laughs> I have too. Um found that very, very interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, before we go, just want to remind our listeners about Witness Underground. We're really trying to get people to, uh, well, visit the website. So if you type Witness, Witness Underground into the search engine, you'll go straight to the Kickstarter campaign. So this is Scott and his colleagues who've created this film. Um, we interviewed Scott and Ryan and others in the past, and we've also in the bonus episode, which... Um, as I'm recording this, will be on Wednesday. By the time you hear it, it will have been on Wednesday. Um, so check that out if you've not heard it yet. And um, yeah, if you want to support these guys, it'd be great because it's a really good thing to do. Um, so yeah, don't forget to do that. Uh, what do we want people to do for us, Celine? Leave a review. Leave a review. <laughs> I, don't, I sound so like, review? so down. so pathetic. Yeah, it's just, you know... Review. Leave a review. I just don't understand. Why are you not doing it? <laughs> I'll guilt you. I'm so sad. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, go yeah leave on. it. Just a good one, obviously. Only a good one. Um, leave yeah. a review. That would be lovely. And just, um, I mean, just say. I mean, if you if you're struggling, just just say something about this episode. Some people yes. they get them to do that. They get them to just comment as reviews. Do that. Go yeah. on. Yeah, but only if you like it, obviously. 
We don't want any bad yeah. reviews. Five stars. I'll, I'll, t- I'll, I'll dictate. <laughs> so five stars. Um, yeah, and actually say something. That's Maybe yeah. people are giving reviews, but they're not saying anything. It, yeah. it matters a big deal if you say something. Say how funny we are. Um, obviously very charismatic. Uh, great, don't, don't great leaders. No. <laughs> no, don't say no, no, no. Right, okay. I'm going to go now. You've just finished work, so um, yeah. let's, let's call it an evening. And uh, thank you very much, listeners, for listening to Court Hackers. See you again next week. Bye. Bye.